listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Romans 8, 18-39 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those he predestined he also called those he called he also justified those he justified he also glorified what then shall we say in response to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Is it God who justifies? Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, For your sake we face, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I read our passage for today, I was reminded of a significant scene from the movie Gravity. If you haven't seen the film, it is about a space, space mission where Dr. Ryan Stone, played by Sandra Bullock, accompanies two other astronauts to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. 
During Dr. Dr. Stone's spacewalk to service the telescope, Mission Control in Houston warns the team about a Russian missile strike on a defunct satellite, which has caused a chain reaction, forming a cloud of debris in space. Mission Control orders that the mission be aborted and that the shuttle begin re-entry immediately out of fear of the debris hitting them. Communication with Mission Control is lost shortly after, and high-speed debris from the Russian satellite strikes their space shuttle and kills one of the astronauts. With their shuttle completely destroyed, Dr. Stone and her colleague, Kowalski, who had a manned maneuvering unit, that is, a jetpack, had enough thrust to fly them to the nearby International Space Station with the hope of using one of its extra capsules to return to Earth. However, complications arise, and Dr. Stone becomes the sole survivor. After she makes it into a capsule with the hope of heading back to Earth, she soon discovers that the capsule's engine has no fuel. She then makes several failed attempts to make radio contact with mission control. However, she makes contact with a non-English-speaking gentleman who is unable to help her. Distraught, she realizes that she is going to die. She begins to weep and speak to herself about her impending death. She says, I'm going to die. I know we are all going to die someday, but I'm going to die today. Thing is, I'm scared. Even though I know I'm going to die today, I'm still scared. Nobody will mourn for me. Nobody will pray for my soul. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will offer a prayer. Or perhaps it is too late. I would say one for myself, but I never prayed in my life. No one ever taught me how. She then continues to weep. It is in this scene that Paul's words in verse 26 resonate with the scene I just described. Paul states, in the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. Although the scene of Dr. Stone doesn't exactly correspond to what Paul is describing, the scene does capture what many Christians experience in light of the present suffering in the world today. How does one even find the words to pray in the face of such evil and suffering? Simply turn on the news and see the turmoil, violence, various forms of injustice, abuse of power, and racism that is happening right now in the United States. These are not issues happening in a distant place, but rather in our own backyard. It is in the light of atrocities and suffering in the world that there are times when we have no words or cannot find the words or simply do not know how to pray. How can I pray when the wait for God to restore all things seems to be ever distant? I remember when I received a phone call from a family member several years ago 
because he wanted to let me know that the doctors diagnosed him with cancer. The next few moments on the phone were filled with silence interrupted by sniffling because we didn't know what to say. We just sat there in silence. I was angry and upset, and if I had the chance to take a swing at God in that moment, I would have. Not having anything to say, we simply cried together, and that was our prayer. What I want to do with you this morning is reflect with you on Romans 8, 18 through 39, with particular attention to verses 26 through 39, to try to get a sense of what is going on there. I'm interested in Paul's understanding of the Spirit's role in transforming a weak and broken world by sharing in the suffering and prayer of God's people. The key aspect I want us to focus on today is this. Even though we may not have the words to pray, we can be confident that the Spirit shares in our suffering and speaks on our behalf. I'm going to repeat that one more time. Even though we may not have the words to pray, we can be confident that the Spirit shares in our suffering and speaks on our behalf. In order to better frame our passage for today, let's take a brief look at how Paul develops his argument for how the Spirit plays an active role in engaging and redeeming God's community. Paul begins his letter to the Romans in 1-4, in chapter 1, verse 4, by informing his readers that Jesus was publicly identified as God's Son and power according to the Spirit of holiness through his resurrection from the dead. What is particularly significant about this passage is that Paul juxtaposes or conjoins together the power of the Spirit and the notion of the resurrection. We will see this intimate relationship between the two develop more fully in 8.11, where Paul states, If the Spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your human bodies also, through his Spirit that lives in you. In the chapters that follow, Paul addresses the problem of the law and its servitude to sin by maintaining that the law's weakness is that it cannot resist the power of sin. Rather, Paul argues that it is the power of God's Spirit that saves God's people, which is also the power that promises God's final victory over the powers of evil in this world. If we look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul explains that we have been made righteous. That is, we've been made right with God, have a healthy relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And it is in Jesus that we have hope. Paul goes on to note that we may face problems along the way, but it builds endurance and character, which produces hope. According to Paul, this hope is not empty because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This sets the stage for chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, where Paul specifically focuses on the Spirit's role in the life of faithful discipleship, namely one's freedom from the law of sin and death. 
Please take a look with me at the beginning of chapter 8. As you can see in verse 2, Paul notes that the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set the Christian free from sin and death. Paul goes on to describe that new life in the spirit as having life in peace. On the other hand, Paul characterizes life that is not in the spirit as selfishness which is hostile to God and ultimately leads to death. For Paul, though there is a second transformation that is brought about through the power of the Spirit among God's people, the indwelling of the Spirit transforms slaves into God's children, which is depicted by Paul's claim that God's children will cry out to God as Abba, Father, Abba is the same designation that Jesus uses to address God in his prayer at Gethsemane in Mark 14, 36. It is also the designation by which Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to God in the Lord's Prayer, our Father, our Abba. By becoming God's children through the power of God's Spirit, an intimate link between God and us is created. As Paul says in verse 17, but if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. If we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. It is through this intimate link that the spirit is able to groan and intercede for us as described in verse 26. In other words, as God's children, the Spirit shares in our suffering as we also share in the suffering of Christ. With Paul arguing that the indwelling of the Spirit among God's children brings about new life, a new intimacy that is a familial relationship with God, he then turns the discussion to why we ought to be willing to suffer with Christ in order to be his fellow heirs through suffering, in verses 18 through 25. According to Paul, the reason is quite simple. Our future glory far outweighs any present suffering. But what does this future glory entail? This becomes clear in verses 19 through 23, and that it is the redemption of the whole of God's creation. However, to understand the frustration that creation is now subjected to is Paul's way of recalling Genesis 3, where God spells out the aftermath of the disobedient of Adam and Eve. One of the consequences is the cursing of the earth itself in in Genesis 3, 17 through 18. Creation itself suffers from the sin of Adam and yearns to be free of the restraint of corruption placed on it. The good news is that Paul announces is that Adam's rebellion will be set right by God in the end, when God will make all things new, including human nature. According to verses 19 through 23, although verses 19 through 23 promises that God will restore creation, the final restoration of everything remains a promise in which we have hope. This does not mean that the hope is empty or wishful thinking, but rather it is grounded in the Spirit. 
This isn't like buying a lottery ticket and hoping that you win when the odds are stacked against you. This is making a wise investment in a company that has already shown fruit and profit. It is through the spirits and dwelling among God's children that God has restored communication. Not only does Paul suggest this in verse 15, where God's children refer to God as Abba, Father, but also in verses 26 through 27, where Paul indicates that prayer is the form of communication that provides us the foretaste of the new creation. Verses 26 through 27 state, In the same way, the Spirit comes to help our weakness. We don't know what we should pray, but the Spirit himself pleads our case with unexpressed groans. The one who searches hearts knows how the Spirit thinks, because he pleads for the saints, consistent with God's will. Just as creation is groaning out and waiting for its restoration, so too is humanity. With humanity, however, Paul notes that we don't know how to pray. Part of the reason is that we are still subject to decay and death, and we are still facing sin. We do so on a daily basis. In fact, Origen, an early church pastor, offers a helpful comment on the need for the Spirit's help in prayer. Origen states, just as a sick man does not ask the doctor for things which will restore him to health, but rather for the things which his disease longs for, so likewise we, as long as we are languishing in the weakness of this life, will from time to time ask God for things which are not good for us. This is why the Spirit has to help. The weakness which the Spirit helps us with is our flesh. Whenever the Holy Spirit sees our spirit struggling with the flesh and being drawn to it, he stretches out his hand and helps us in our weakness. Paul also reassures us in verse 27 that even when we don't have the words to pray, the living God is an intimate, is an intimate touch with the Spirit so that the inarticulate but self-assisted but, but Spirit-assisted groans come before God as true prayer, true intercession. This confidence in the Spirit by Paul is rooted in the fact that God has taken control of our future and made it secure. Paul builds this argument on the basis that God has chosen to redeem all things, which is demonstrated by the presence of the Spirit within the community of those faithful to Christ. In other words, God knows the end to which God will bring God's creation, namely redemption. Paul does not stop with placing assurance on God's foreknowing the talos or the end to which God is drawing history. But he sums it up. But he sums up his argument in verses 31 through 39. In spite of the suffering in the world, nothing will stop God from redeeming it, nor will anything be able to separate us from Christ Jesus. Paul has complete confidence in God's care and love for us. For Paul, there is no dimension of reality that can impede us from God's love in Christ Jesus, which is a result of the intimate connection formed through the Holy Spirit. 
As I noted earlier, Dr. Stone's example of not knowing how to pray often captures the way many of God's people feel today when they are faced with, the, with evil and the devastation of this world. My grandfather is an example of this. Several years ago, when Janelle and I and our two boys were living in Los Angeles, uh, we made a trip home to Jamestown, New York for a couple of weeks. I spent several, of days, several days with my grandfather because he was 93 years old, and I knew that my time with him was getting shorter. One of our customs when we got together was playing dominoes. He learned this uh, game, a version of dominoes, when he was in World War II. During one of those days that I visited with him, we played for a few hours. As we played, he began to tell me stories of his time in the Special Forces in World War II. He just discussed how he was unable to sleep lately because he was having flashbacks of the war. One particular instance that significantly affected him occurred after a battle on the island of Saipan when his unit came upon a dying Japanese soldier. When my grandfather came up to him, the soldier had pulled out a picture of his wife and child and was staring at him as he was passing away. After telling me this story, my grandfather became quiet and in a few moments later, and a few moments later, he began to talk about his regret about the war and that he doesn't know what to say to God about what happened. I remember him asking me on several occasions whether God would forgive him. He knew I was going into ministry and studying theology, um, and he would constantly ask me, he said, Chris, will God forgive me for everything that has happened? When my grandfather became a Christian near the end of the war, he spent his life wrestling with what he did and whether there was hope in God making all things right again including him. He had prayed countless of times about the evil that he witnessed and was a part of, but he had lost the words to pray about his guilt and ceaseless desire to make things right. Our passage for today speaks to moments like this in our lives. It is in these moments when we don't know what to say. We can be confident that the Spirit shares in our sufferings and speaks on our behalf. Moreover, Paul reassures us of the hope that we have in that God will make all things new and right. Even though my grandfather didn't have the words to pray, God's Spirit spoke on his behalf and felt his pain. And when we don't have the words to pray, the Spirit is already at work in our lives, sharing in our suffering and speaking for us. So let us not lose hope, because God is with us. This is the promise that we have in Scripture. This is the promise that we have in Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, 
BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.